Welcome, crew, to What Are Your Three, a Channel 3 podcast where we take a member of the Channel 3 community, discuss three games of their choosing, go down some honorable mentions, and talk about some other odds and ends for some video game discussion. I'm Dan Tucker, and with me, as always, is L. Ray. What's going on, everybody? Today's guest, you may know him from two places. Number one, he is one of the original founding members. He's got that golden founding member tag on Channel 3. And more recently, if you're paying attention and you see these reviews, usually in three lines in a hike format, this is the man who puts them together. It is the Ender Phoenix himself. Sometimes Ender, sometimes Matt. How are you doing today, Matt? What's a haiku? What's a haiku? What? <laughs> That's a- <laughs> <laughs> you gonna just, pronounce it in some other way? He just kneecaps you and just pretends it was just coincidentally went with five seven five every time. Let me tell you right now, I went to Google just to make sure I knew how to pronounce it correctly. I was gonna, I was gonna make sure I said the right word. See, that's and, how you can tell you didn't go to a Catholic grade school in Philly, where for some reason I feel like we spent six months having to learn how to write haiku in five seven five format. He writes them. It's real people. Check it out. Yeah, it's, it's a fun little thing I, I like to do. And when we first started on the site, I was like, eh, what could I do? That'd be like a niche little thing. And I started that and surprisingly, nobody else picked it up. So I just continued with it. See, Matt was busting your chops about the uh, the GIF, GIF, SNES, SNES thing. And I feel like the, the niche, niche, I don't know if there's a right answer for that one either. I don't know. I, I, I alternate I'm not, that, but we could start that war too if you want. I'm not starting that war. I'll let you do that. Listen, I'm I, I, I'm built to start wars. Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna say niche, and that's not to be against you because I, was, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've heard niche. I alternate. I, I knew I what you were alternate. saying, but I was I would go niche. I'll put that as a question. I'm not afraid. Oh, we'll put I'll, I'll put my face on it too. I'll, I'll get a picture of Matt's face for niche and put mine as then, niche. Then I'll be a fence sitter because I'll go back and forth between the two <laughs> pronunciations. We don't talk fence sitters anymore. <laughs> oh God. Oh, I love this. It's going off the rails two minutes in. I love it. This is so good. This is so good. Oh, you know what? That's the comment that we're going to jump to the games on that comment right there. Game number one, Monster Hunter World. It says Iceborne in particular. So let's just start with Monster Hunter World. There are many Monster Hunters. We just so happened to talk about Monster Hunter Rise on our last podcast. Why Monster Hunter World? And then we'll get into Iceborne too. I've been playing Monster Hunter since Monster Hunter 3 Ultimate on the Wii U. And Monster Hunter World was that graphical update and quality of life improvements that they made that just really brought the entire saga to the forefront. It's to date Capcom's best selling game. And it was a game I originally bought on the PS4, played about three to 400 hours on that. And then when it came out on PC, bought it again so I could play with all my PC friends. And that plus Iceborne put in another like seven to 800 hours. So it's just everything that they've done with the game has been phenomenal. Did a lot to increase the quality of life. And the monsters themselves were iconic and some of the best of the series. So you say you bought it to play and you play with a bunch of friends. Is Monster Hunter a game that's better when you're playing with a group of people? Does it change the strategy when you're going against? these monsters better can be subjective because there's some people who play it completely solo because they want everything to be their responsibility whereas if you go in with some randoms or friends and they faint during the course of a quest causes a little bit of tension so yeah it's it depends on what type of gamer you are it's a game that fits both 
solo players and multiplayers, and it definitely does change the strategy. More people means you could bring more traps or more healing items. They also have monsters that are specific to going in with a group of people. There's some crazy people out there that can solo them, but ultimately it's best played with other people. I'm glad you said at the end that it was best to play with other people. I'm going to do everything I can to refrain from making a fence comment as you, as you give answers today. Uh, so move on, move you on. Said, <laughs> you said, so you said it improved the quality of life and kind of everything about the game. Is there, could you name something specific that, that the jump was so significant to you that you were like, Oh wow, look at this change here that happened. So the older Monster Hunter games pre-world had what was known as zones where the map would be split into like nine to ten different areas. And as you transition between, let's say, zone one and two, you get a load screen. They eliminated that world. The map was now just one large map. And old games, you used to use that as a strategy because if the monster was kicking your butt, you could back out to another zone to heal up and go back in. Here... There's zones, but the monster could freely go between them and chase you if it wanted to. So to do that, they made a couple different changes, such as in the old games, when you would heal or drink your health potion, your character would literally freeze on screen for about, you know, like a five second animation. This game in World, they started it where you could heal by drinking and you're actively healing and you're walking around. You don't freeze in motion. So what ended up happening is they had to change different things to the games. And one of the big things was loading zones and making the map one giant open area. So I saw, because I was looking through your reviews, that you did, I mean, you've played, like you said, you played all the Monster Hunters, which means you played Monster Hunter Rise too. And that's the newer game. So why why you, why did you go with the older one instead of the newer game? Do Is it the system? Did you not like the kind of uh, the more like vertical world of Rise in comparison to just the open world of this one? I loved Rise a lot, and especially it's expansion sunbreak but world was the first one to make it easier to play with my friends and get them into the game so it, to me it has a level of significance over rise now i got them to play rise as well we and with sunbreak we have about seven to eight hundred hours in that ourselves but world was that first one that i got all my friends into and then we put so much time and effort and making our builds and playing with the different weapons. So World had a definite, a specific and a special place in my heart for what it did for the series and how I played with my friends. And all right, so now Iceborne, why why are we talking about this specific expansion in, in Monster Hunter World? So in the old games, when they did a quote-unquote expansion, because if you don't know, Monster Hunter has several layers of difficulty from low rank to high rank to what's called now master rank. The old games, they would release an entirely new game and just call it Ultimate. You'd have to start from scratch. The Starting with Iceborne, it was a DLC to the base game, and your progression carried over. And what ended up happening was you could just continue on into the new master rank system without having to start all the way over. So all the gear you worked hard for, all of the armor and, and weapons you put into, and the crafting of the gems and everything that you 
went into your build, you didn't lose that. You didn't have to start over from scratch. Plus, it wasn't a full-priced game. It was, I think it was like $40 when it released. So it was really, again, a change in the dynamic of how they delivered Monster Hunter to everybody. You know, that's interesting, and I'm kind of I'm kind of going off to another game here, because I'm sitting here wondering when Elden Ring puts out their DLC, how exactly that's going to work. Because like you just said, Monster Hunter put out an extra DLC and said, here's all your stuff, you keep everything the same, we've just added a new portion of the game. How did they do that in a way that, you know, if I've played less than you, how can we both have kind of the same experience with this new world area? Great question, because they actually did think of that. So there's two aspects to Monster Hunter that you that are really important. It's your armor and your weapons. And by killing monsters or capturing monsters, you get the parts to make new weapons and armor and upgrade and so on and so forth. When they released the DLC, they put a fast-track armor and weapon set out that you could build with just normal in-game money. And it gave you at, like somewhere between the high rank and master rank at the lowest level to help you survive and get through the base game to get to the end game to play with your friends if that was your desire if not you still have the entire base game to play through earning parts and armor and weapons at your own leisure so they basically made a fast track and say hey if you want to play the new stuff here's an easy way to get to the new stuff essentially that's what you're saying for the most part yeah yeah so what if could anyone have been overpowered already before Iceborne came out? There always could be because even so the best high rank armor weapons were still better than the fast track set that they gave out, which made going into the master rank stuff a little easier. But it really didn't matter because soon enough you were still hitting those walls that Iceborne okay gave you all right let's move on to game number two the legend of zelda the wind waker and i'm just going to start off right at the beginning here it's been about two decades now for this game what was your initial thought when they dropped the first trailers they dropped the first information for this game and you saw the cell shading you saw a wildly different game from majora's mask and ocarina of time like how i said it ocarina ray you happy this time? I said Ocarina with no errors. I'm just glad you're improving yourself. It's all right. It's all about we're just we're all getting better in life one day at a time. I tried to explain there were no Ocarina Ocarina dealers in Philly, so I'm I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> but hey, so in all, in all seriousness, though, so coming off of those two games, I'm not counting the handheld. I feel like handheld Zelda games are a separate category from, you know, main, not mainline, because most of the handhelds count as mainline. But anyway, so I, I'm going to shut up and just ask, like, what was your initial take when you first saw this animation style coming out here? Be honest. So, so little known secret about me is I didn't have an N64 when I grew up. So I didn't have the same level of fondness for the Ocarina art style. That was out there. So when I saw it, I think it was first in my first electronic gaming monthly that I saw the Wind Waker leaks and pictures. I loved it. I was like, this is cool. I like what they're doing. And everybody said, oh, it looks like a kiddie thing. No, it's it's a different style of game. It's like looking at the original Legend of Zelda and Zelda 2 and then looking at A Link to the Past and like, oh, Zelda's got pinkish hair. Okay, That was an art style choice that they made, and it worked. And I really loved the art style that was presented for Wind Waker. So why did you pick this one? So you've had plenty of time to discuss the the Zelda series, and we're going to leave Breath of the Wild out of this conversation. But for the entire series, what you've played, why did you pick this one to be your representative? The art style is different enough compared to the other games, and I'm not counting Phantom Hourglass or Spirit Tracks, because those were sub 
sets of what this game presented. So it was one of the first full Zelda games that I beat. And that was, I think, even after Link's Awakening. But the art style, the gameplay, people might turn out and say that the the sailing sections were boring. I found them exciting because there was always stuff to do, whether it was hooking for treasure or finding a little island that might have had a, a treasure chest in and of itself. I enjoyed the sailing portion of it. Was it a little too far open for some people's taste? Yeah, but to me at the time, I enjoyed it. I remember playing it in college, getting it for the GameCube, playing through it all, and it was just such an adventure at the time when I was lacking other adventure games. We're going to do an obligatory pause here for Ray to rip us for the math on, uh, again, as, as we mentioned before the podcast, Matt and I know each other from that college era, so Ray is here to take shots at the old men. Uh, so we'll leave obligatory comment here. Or should we just move on, Ray? Are we good to get out of your I system, bud? I, don't have, I actually don't have an old comment for this, but I actually my comment is that I feel like the Wind Waker animation has been adopted by the Nintendo Switch as almost a very like it's a very fun animation style that you can settle in on, especially with the the graphics not being super intensive on the Switch. And I I, I don't know I appreciate them. I like that kind of colorful fun style. Like it like I it makes me feel like I'm playing a video game. Like it makes yeah. me happy that I'm playing a video game. I think if you're not going to pursue that uncanny valley, trying to like cross that, I think Nintendo understands its lane. It understands like no, we're going to stick in animation and video games and they've got that that kind of brand that like listen I don't need Splatoon 3. I don't need Fire Emblem to look like it's a realistic person. Just let me have the games and they understand where their lane's at. They can't keep up technologically, but you know what? Their systems cost a lot less for it. They're able to just churn them out there. It's fine. No problem. I can carry it handheld. PlayStation, I try and get that thing running across the internet, playing on my phone and it gets cranky, but you know, whatever. Neither here nor there. <laughs> and, and but the, also that's where I'm a little disappointed in the latest generation of Zeldas because there was a time that artistic style t- took a stance and the system was better for it. I don't I don't remember Wind Waker chugging particularly, but the remake of Link's Awakening and definitely parts of Breath of the Wild and what I've seen of Tears of the Kingdom, the system struggles to keep up. So you have a artistic integrity, but your system is suffering for it. And I felt that that didn't happen with Wind Waker. Yeah, we're. We're a couple of weeks away from Tears of the Kingdom, and I've been watching the the news story start to sneak out there, really questioning and and raise raise aware of my uh, my only the original or better switch, not the not the whatever that not the Switch Lite stance, but the Switch Lite's Lite's probably going to catch fire if you try to play Tears of the Kingdom <laughs> on it, and that's been my concern all along. But yeah, it looks like there's even even on base switches, it looks like there might be some troubles coming. Uh, with how tears is running we'll we'll see but again back to uh back to the wind waker though so you, you talked about the optional area or you, know, you talked about the open sea it's a really open world there were a lot of optional areas even as far as exploration goes right like you, you had certain progression to take place for the main game but you had a had a lot of freedom more than any zelda game probably before it to just kind of explore and find some some random things yeah, and it was neat because in the game you could buy treasure maps and it would give you areas to go to if you wanted to find treasure and up your rupee count. And it was it was neat that it, for how much slack the GameCube got versus the PS2, it, it was nice to have a game that I could explore at my leisure and kind of go off and do what I wanted to do. Are we? So here's the controversial question for this one. Why did we not get a re-release? Where is this at? Where? 
Zelda's 35 it's, came and went nothing. Yeah, and it's it's languishing on the Wii U and we're a lot of people are happy that we got Skyward Sword as a as a variant on the Switch and a lot of people are saying I can't, I don't want to plug in my Wii U and have it die and never have access to the Wind Waker again and that's why I always advertise emulation yeah or I, or I don't want to spend two hundred dollars to uh, find a disc for it somewhere not going to happen yeah all right last thing Ray do you want your head to explode do you want us to explain where this one falls in the timeline because I made sure I was prepared today Ray with exactly how this I'm falls looking- in the timeline. I'm looking at your preparation, and I mean, I as someone who did not play Legend of Zelda games, it's just that's not my story. I have like read through all the different timelines. It's very interesting. If it feels like Nintendo is about to pull off one of the great like wrap ups of a story of all time, but yeah, you go for it. Um, well, that's what I'm telling. I Matt, Matt brought up the Skyward Sword thing, and I. I'm telling you, there's something to do with Skyward Sword and the way this is, and my head's been been attacking itself about the circle, the circle of time you j- made a joke about that. I'm like, wait, what if he's right? What if he's right? It is just time's a flat circle, and this feeds back to Skyward Sword in the beginning. And no, oh, God, yeah, yeah. I just, I just like the fact that this is the no. What if, what if Ocarina of Time ended? Adult Link went back to being young Link, so he wasn't there to stop Ganon when Ganon returned. And this is this is centuries later afterwards, after Ganon destroyed everything. And like, so you got one of your branching timelines in here. But I honestly, even when this game came out, I had no idea. I had no idea any of that was the case. You always just had you had a Link, you had a in this case Zelda is a, a pirate pirate. What do you call her? Pirate captain, pirate queen, whatever you want to call her. Whatever Zelda's a pirate in this one. You always just have the, the same features coming back one way or the other. And Wind Waker was no different. All right. So we move on to the third game, Team Fortress 2, which I was just excited to hear about because Team Fortress uh, got me through some gaming time when all I had was a laptop that was not made for gaming. And this thing still ran on it and I can still play with a team. But before we get into the game, I I was told I have to ask. And there I know there's a post on the site. I have to ask about the proposal. And how Team Fortress Two comes into play with <laughs> with with the marriage proposal. So let's we got to start there. Okay, so to to answer that question, I ask another question: What class was your favorite, Ray? Oh, for me, I I had so much fun going around as the um, oh gosh, as the secret agent, especially when you spy, yeah, yeah, with the spy, especially when you got either the ice pick or the you know the the steel identity when you when you assassinate somebody right away. I had, and then I was a support. I used the healer, and I was like, I'm very happy if someone wants to run around and get all, and I will follow along and make sure you survive. Like I was really happy doing it. Okay, so. To answer your question in a roundabout way, and this makes for thrilling audio, but here on the video, you can see. There it is. I got the the pyro tattoo because pyro was my class. And Team Fortress 2 is another game that I have hundreds of hours in. And it was one of the first games my wife and I played when we were dating. So one of the first things we did when I dated my wife was we went to Anime Next, which is an anime video game convention here in Jersey. And I cosplayed as the Pyro. It was something my friends and I had started. We were like, oh, this game's great. Let's let's do something when we go to the con. So I cosplay as Pyro and the suit was as hot as you think it is. So when I started dating my now wife, we 
we would go to the convention and she went dressed up as a white mage. And at that time, I I knew I was going to propose to her. I had bought the ring in like January and the con wasn't until like June. So trying to hide a ring for six months was a pain in my butt. So there were easier ways to hide time, it than that, Matt. Well, okay. So funnier side story <laughs> was I bought the warranty and they sent a letter to my house and my mom oh, that's amazing. <laughs> sent me a text being like, hey, what's the Zales thing? And my mind freaked out and thought it was my wife, Veronica, sending me a text going like, why would Zale send me something? I don't know. And then I reread it. I go, oh, OK, no, that's mom. OK, hey, do me a favor. Hide the uh, <laughs> hide the letter. <laughs> so anyway, back to the story is we went to the convention that year. I dressed up as the pyro. She was the white mage from Final Fantasy. And I had organized a bunch of my friends, one friend who was a photographer and another person to videotape it and sure enough i got the proposal on video photographed at that time she said yes obviously and the thing i had to do was was doff my outfit the the gas mask the the grenades the flamethrower yes i had a real replica flamethrower carrying around that thing was heavy but to give you all the idea of how much I love Team Fortress 2 and how much that means to my friends and I. Tucker will remember this, but at my wedding, my wife and I walked out to the Team Fortress 2 theme. And it was great because the gamer friends that I had at my wedding were the only ones who, when they started hearing the ticking of that sound, they knew exactly what was up. And that's what meant the world to us. So that's why this game is probably in my top games of all time because of how good it is, but also how much it means to me and my wife personally. It was like a five to 10% of the population, maybe, including my wife. Was like, What's going on here? And the rest of us like, are, are cracking up there. Like one of the greatest inside jokes of all time there. Why so but like so why is Team Fortress 2 the game you and your now wife played first? What is she I know she's on the website. Is she a big gamer too and like this is just the one that you guys agreed on? How did this happen? Uh yeah, she is a huge gamer and I'll give her a shout out on Twitch gamer Veranza V E R A N Z A. She does Twitch. She plays a lot of video games when we were dating. I she had a gaming computer and it was from like I buy power or something. So you know, pre-built are not a bad thing, but at that time I had already built my own computer, I think three times over. So I built her, her computer and she wanted to play with my friends and I, and that was just one of the first games because it came out in 2007 with the orange box and her and I started dating in 2009. My friends and I were still playing that game at that time. Her favorite class at the time was the heavy and it was perfect. Cause I had a friend who played the medic and he would go between us and, make sure that we stayed alive to kill everything else that was not our team. And it was a game that jived with us both. There weren't many other multiplayer games that we played. We had a lot of Borderlands that came down the line, but Team Fortress 2 was one of the first games we played together. And as you can see, it obviously means a whole lot to me. Uh, Is this a game that you played with friends? Is this one that um, did you make any friends kind of playing or... Are there friends that you have because this is the game you play and you guys kind of stayed connected because of it? This is absolutely the game that I made friends and I give him a shout out. His his uh, Steam name is Martha Stewart because he always thought it was hilarious that when he killed somebody, it said Martha Stewart killed you. Steve, Greeth, a bunch of people that we played that we then we were at their weddings. They were at my wedding. And these are people who are no longer friends, but family. So that's it. That Cinderella story of meeting people online and having them not be murderers. How's it feel that there's a, um, it took 16 years, but the game ended up getting, or is about to get, I forgot if it came out already, 
like a brand new update. Is is it amazing that this game is still happening and people are still playing it? Is it? I guess, I guess it's not surprising to you because you love the game, but are you amazed that, it, that they, they keep going on with it? Not really. I mean, look at Counter-Strike Source and Counter-Strike Go. I mean, we're getting Counter-Strike 2 this year for the first time. First real sequel from Valve in a long time. But the fact that the community is supported as well, the community had buy-in because they would make items and make money off the sales of those items. So that led a lot to the longevity of it. And it's always been a solid game built off of an even more solid game of counter or I'm sorry, uh, team fortress classic. And what valve did with this was lightning in a bottle. And that's why I think they don't want to count to number three with any of their series. So what, what sets it apart? Because again, I know there's, there's counter strike, there's team fortress, but there's a lot of shooters in between that kind of come and go or have to change what they're doing every few years. This game kind of really stayed consistent. You know, you, you have classes, you play, and, and you have you go win of the group. Why is Team Fortress like set apart from other first person shooters? So it was definitely one of the first in my memory class based shooters where every role played some level of importance to completing the objective, whether it was a push pull map, a payload map, a capture the flag. And it, like I said, it started off on very solid ground and each class was super specialized to what they did. And then to keep the game fresh, they started introducing side grade weapons, not necessarily upgrades. It didn't make you automatically better. Now there came a lot of balancing with that, but they kept the game fresh. And unfortunately Valve doesn't get enough slack for this, but they started the microtransaction loot box market and i will be one of the first ones to say wow it was cool when it began but oh what did it turn into and that still kept the game fresh people wanted their hats and it was funny because you had other companies making loss reportings in their in their annual summaries and val was like oh yeah we just made a ton of money selling virtual hats and it was a status symbol that people wanted and it kept the game fresh, and after all these years, even though the game is currently overloaded with bots and, and hackers, it's still sometimes fun to get together with a group of your friends and raffle stomp a server. Uh, I'll finish with this because we've t- we've kind of talked about it in the first two games already. How do you feel about the, the graphics and the art style of this game? Done. We did graphics with Monster Hunter, we talked about the art style with Zelda. How about Team Fortress 2? I remember going through the director's commentary and they talked specifically about the art style or this 1950s 1960s art deco style but they also talked about the silhouettes of the classes and where you can instantly identify the clash you're going up against because of the the silhouette the the shape of the person you're looking at and it's it sets it apart huge from other games playing overwatch in the last couple of years i couldn't tell you who does what but Looking at Team Fortress 2, knowing the roles that each of them have and seeing them from a distance going, oh, that's the sniper. I, I need to take a different route throughout the level. Looking at a spy and going, okay, if this person was a spy, would they be doing this? Because I see a medic. Why is the medic running at me from the other end of the map and he's not healing me when he's in range? Oh, that's a spy. And here I come as the pyro spy checking. Everybody is giving a quick puff of my flamethrower. Seeing if I set anybody a lot on fire. And if I do bet your bottom dollar, I'm chasing them. All right. So we've gone through our big three games here onto our honorable mentions. We'll talk about three games here that didn't quite make the cut. We're going to start off on the uh, PlayStation one here for a couple of games. 
Talk about Silent Hill, 4.6 rated on Channel 3. The funniest thing about this I have to bring up first of all, this predated the haiku reviews. This review was uh, nearly a year old from you and realized that did that did not... The, the haikus came along pretty quickly, but this one was not one of them. I think I had started the haikus after my initial thought. I was really going for like these bombastic reviews, and I think you could see that in, I think, Descent 2. But once I started the haiku i decided that was what i was going to do but to your point yeah it i really wanted to explain what i loved about the game and a lot of people were on the resident evil hype train including myself and there's another tattoo there with resident evil but the silent hill franchise was just so creepy that i really love what they were going for versus what resident evil was offering yeah, especially Resident Evil ended up moving towards that action genre more than than the suspense. And I, I, Silent Hill is a vibe game. I feel like I have to say that, or at least that's my opinion of it. Like it's just an eerie, you said eerie. I think you already described that, but an eerie vibe game by comparison. And one of the things that stood out to me with this one is the game screen itself. Right, you don't have a heads up display, so you're just in the game. You don't have a health bar in the bottom. You don't have like other stuff in there. So you're just in what's going on in the screen there. And and I've always loved. The- that when developers take limitations and work it to their favor and silent hill was the explicit example of that because they using the playstation one they couldn't do the draw distance necessary to write the town so they created the fog layer that you couldn't see 10 feet in front of your character because they didn't want to do the draw distance and bog down the system and that's the reason why when we go outside and uh, we see that it's foggy. That's why we use the term Holy Silent Hill, because we all know that it's super foggy and you can't see anything. And it turned out to be one of the creepiest factors of the game, coupling that with the radio that created static whenever there was a monster around, because then the monster was shrouded in mist. You didn't know where they were. Yeah, you just sat there, the hairs up on your neck, trying, trying to figure out which way it's coming from. And, you know, you weren't playing with uh, 360 surround sound headphones or anything like that. You're playing on a CRT TV. So you're just, you're just trying to figure out where the thing's coming from. Yeah. And I got a pipe and maybe two bullets. And I go, I don't know if I can survive this. So, how many times did you play this game through? Is this a multi replay for you? How did this one end up at the top of the list? Like, what, what, what pushed this ahead of some of the other games here? I think I played through it twice not very different endings but it is one of those games that you can get multiple endings from and it's each one it's kind of abstract as to what happens at the end so when things get very abstract i tend not to try to replay them i'll just go look up what happened and the explanation behind it so definitely once or twice for me and i left it at that but it definitely has a a room in my mental hallway of uh creepiness and that's what i love so much about it yeah there there are five possible endings i believe ranging from bad to bad plus good to good plus and then just one entirely joke ending that's not no, nothing cryptic about you it's an alien abduction at the end of that one that's just like ridiculous my my favorite because games do the other things that where they'll create memes of themselves and one of my favorite memes is the picture of harry sitting in front of a dog house with the caption from the game because when you click on it it goes oh i think there's a dog around here and the the picture has one of the monster dogs jumping in from the side just as the player had clicked it without harry seeing it it was just one of the funniest memes i'd seen from the game you ready for silent hill 2 getting the, the remake treatment konami apparently learned they can make video games again and not just uh bad <laughs> bad gambling machines but they actually have some some decent game libraries they can tinker with if they don't have a pachinko machine in it i'm gonna be very upset i 
I'm, I'm trying to figure out. I really want to know what's happening in the boardrooms over there. But yeah, the, the, they realize it's not just Pachinko machines. Let's go. Playable Characters Podcast. Funny interviews with real video game characters. Hi, I'm Calvin Cato. And I'm Brian and- McGinnis. And we interview video game characters yes. on our show. We have comedians and actors come on and pretend they're a video game character for 30 minutes. We talk to them. It's all ad-libbed and improvised and always very funny. Uh, past guests include Bowser, Ms. Pac-Man, Q-Bert, Princess Peach, and Princess Daisy. Yeah. Yeah. You put them in a booth and uh, something short-circuited. And I decided that someone was taking too long in the money booth. <laughs> And I hit her with a baseball bat. <laughs> and oh. thus was born Super Smash TV. Oh. Just like that. I was being raised by a family of, t- of toadstools. Oh. Um, How is that? Is that? That seemed like it might be kind of fun. It bit. was. It was, really, like it was really fun. Mario should stick to plumbing. Okay. Okay. He's a very, from what I hear, a good plumber, a terrible hero. Yes. So, I mean, really bad. And I mean, let's not get started on his whatever he is, uh, you know. Friend, brother, special friend, I don't know, Luigi, <laughs> whatever they're doing. Right? Yeah. Sure well, they're that's what they're saying. <laughs> that's what they're saying. They're right. saying they're brothers because, you know, in the uh, Italian-American community, <laughs> these people tend to not look yeah. kindly on certain relationships. If you want to know what's going on in your favorite video game character's life, check us out. Playable Characters Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Yes, comes out every Monday. So let's let's talk about uh, another PlayStation game here. You talked about some of the limitations, some of the the breaks, some of the changes. A game that that took a while to get off the ground. Uh, a, a beautiful story and development perseverance. We can we can get to that. But Tenchu Stealth Assassin. I have to add this one to the library. Also, I have a note for myself after this that I actually have to add that to the Channel Three library. Uh, but a, a major stealth game uh, for the PlayStation One. Let's talk about how this one ended up here. So it came out, I want to say, just before, just after Metal Gear Solid. I remember specifically playing it before, but that doesn't mean that was the order of operations. I remember reading about this in the same magazine that they were talking about Thrill Kill, and we all know what happened to Thrill Kill. And I was afraid the same thing was going to happen with Tenchu, but I was on that game hard compared to the same way some people were on Metal Gear Solid. And Metal Gear Solid was a great stealth action adventure, but you know it didn't have ninja. Wait, no, okay, it had ninjas. Um, it had one cyborg ninja, but it was, you weren't was, the ninja though. There were two ninjas. <laughs> you got to be two ninjas. Yeah, I, 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 it was sad. I didn't get to be the ninja. So Tenchu allowed you to be the ninja, and not just one. You could be one of two ninjas, Rikimaru or Ayame. And really, for the time, it was interesting because given that it was set in feudal Japan, and given that you were ninjas. Men and women at the time were treated differently. And if you played as Ayame, when you go up against certain bosses, they would either say something differently or act differently. In one scene, Riki Maru confronts his aggressor and the aggressor goes, you're right. I've been dishonored. I now need to commit suicide. Can you help me? And the tradition in feudal Japan was the samurai or ninja would chop off the head of the person who was committing seppuku. If you are Ayame, the female ninja the person would challenge you. They wouldn't see you as worthy. So you got to kick their butt as a cool female ninja. And it was so much fun playing the game. And the controls were horrendous, but you could do different things. And the entire purpose was not to be seen, to kill all your enemies, not be detected. And you could do what was called stealth kills. And each character had three different types of stealth kills you could do based on your positioning once you got up against, let's say, a palace guard. If you were behind them, it would do one. 
if it was to either side of them, you would do stealth kill number two. And if you were directly in front of them, which was the most challenging, it would do like a really cool stealth kill. So that was the fun part of the game. And I think it was only like 10 or 13 levels. You got different types of weapons. You could use poisoned rice. You got shurikens. You had a cool grappling hook that will allow you to get height advantage over the guards you were trying to sneak past. It had rebirth items, health items, colored rice to to plot your path because the maps in these games weren't great. You could pull up the map and maybe you figured out where you were. But all of that was done alongside what was known as Metal Gear Solid. And Metal Gear Solid had the cool maps, the spy action, the cool guns. I just always liked ninjas more than like spy operatives. And that's why that game was more highlighted for me. Super violent, super cool at the time, look awesome. Doesn't really hold up today, but I love that game quite a bit. And it was a couple of years ago, I actually went and I bought the PS1 disc just so I have it in my collection, even though I'm able to play it digitally. You, you mentioned the Metal Gear comp, and I, I think the the IP aspect of it and the, the Kojima coming back aspect of it probably kind of put that one in, in probably in people's faces more, made it more of the option or the one that was more talked about. I, I'm just impressed with the development this one took because it started in like 1994, I guess effectively a cocktail napkin or a lot of discussions, but they kept trying and kept trying and kept trying to go to Sony and kept getting turned down who because they didn't want to work with a new developer you know sony was really trying to just work with existing folks existing technology and they were able to they still got to to push this one through and and make it work so i think as much as anything the development of it was a really cool story and really you know and how perseverance worked and they built just kind of a game because listen metal gear solid like you didn't get ranked at the end of it as to how you did from a stealth perspective like you could eventually was metal gear was it one or two solid one or solid two where you get the uh the invisibility for the entire game if you managed to go undetected i think maybe it was two whatever not the point but you know like this one you got ranked how did how did you rank typically by the way because i think didn't it rank you at the end somewhere between like thug and grandmaster <laughs> depending yeah, on how I, you did i don't think i ever got grandmaster level in any of the levels i i at the start of playing the game, I was thugged quite a bit, but as I went and practiced, I was somewhere around the B area for most missions. I did end up beating the game, though I did use some some cheats and codes at the during the final boss because he was tough. What was also interesting is now going back, having beaten Elden Ring last year, I was like, oh man, that was a lot of fun. What other what other FromSoft games did I want to put? Oh. Okay, so Tenchu was my first FromSoft game. Oh, we'll, we'll be coming back to them soon, but I'm going to let Ray jump yep. back in here. So we get to the third honorable mention, Soul Calibur 2. Uh, the first question that has to be asked is, what console did you play Soul Calibur 2 on? Because this it became very important on what you played it on. I played that on the GameCube. Ah, how did you feel about having Link and his Master Sword as a playable character? It was freaking awesome. I loved it. It was amazing. I think it's the first Soul Calibur I played, probably one of the first fighting games. And I just thought, whoa, this is cool. Like Nintendo can take characters and put them in games and make it work, even with a game that wasn't the correct like system, like Link's an Avenger character, and now he can play in a fighter game. We don't get a lot of fighting games uh, usually on these lists here. How? Why does this one show up for you? Soul Calibur is one of those games that has lasted through the ages, uh, to use the term of the game uh first pay i never played soul blade so when soul caliber came out on dreamcast it was one of it was one of those dreamcast games that everybody had and i found my niche in playing it and it ended up just sticking with me i played soul caliber 2 soul caliber 3 i don't think i did 4 i played 5 
and now I have six. So it's definitely one of those games that I could pick up my main character in any of the ages and play it and do moderately okay. So who who would be your main character? Is it was it kind of is it a repeating one that you still use today, or it's kind of changed per game? It's nightmare. It's it has been, always will be nightmare, and I feel bad for my friends because they keep deciding to challenge me, and I purposely don't pick nightmare because when I do, it's a problem for them. So, would you do you consider yourself a very good Soul Caliber player? Oh, absolutely not. Just like before the dad <laughs> gaming, when I was like, oh yeah, I'm pretty good at Smash Brothers. Yeah, thanks, Tucker. <laughs> Link Link versus Link battle did not go the way I wanted it to. Listen, you you got out before Ray came in and started mopping people up with Mario alone. I, I, I was reminiscing <laughs> about that the other day. But I I'm I'm decent with it amongst my friends. I I wouldn't take it to any actual tournament. I'm just slightly better than a button masher when it comes to that game. Just nightmare. I tend to know his move sets. I tend to know what move will link into another one, how to move across the board. Other characters I'm not nearly as versed in. Could you play this game well at an arcade? Could you beat the computer at the arcade? Because I think, honestly, I think that's one of the hardest things to do in gaming is is just beat PCs at an arcade. Oh yeah, no, I can take on the PC any day. It's just, it's one of those things that once I know what character I'm going against, I know what moveset I need for Nightmare to be able to counter it. Before I jump into the future game, Ray, I think that's probably the best summary of the dad gaming. It's just learning that best in your friend group doesn't mean a thing when it comes to... It, it doesn't matter whether it's Mario Kart or whether it's Smash Brothers. I'm sure Fortnite's the same thing. Whatever. I, I'm best in my friend group. I'm coming in here and they just get slapped around. That's... uh. That's I was po- I was positive I could just show up to Mario Kart and be a decent racer because I thought it's you know you you just you drive the car you get an item you throw it this is this is simple enough there's no way that this game could be complicated and and then I met people best of my friend group oh look uh, I didn't even get to finish the race again for the sixth time in a row nice <laughs> there's there's guys in dad gaming's making shot with green shells I can't make with the blue shell. <laughs> The results guys, are in. The guys in the dead gaming hitting themselves with a blue shell just for fun. <laughs> Made that a quest on channel three just to amuse ourselves. <laughs> Hit yourself with a blue shell. Uh, all right. Well, let, let's get back to From Software here. So we're talking about a game you're looking forward to. Armored Core 6. Dusting. Getting a little dust off the uh, the old franchise there. It's been a couple of years, huh? But uh, the fires of Rubicon. Yeah, fire. Ten, it was, I think, uh, 10 years, basically. Decade-long hiatus here. FromSoft is just hitting on all cylinders. And when the rumors were coming out before Jeff Keighley's Game Awards that we were possibly going to see something from FromSoft, we're like, okay, what is it? Is it going to be the Elden Ring DLC? Elden Ring is it? Yeah, is it going to be a no Dark Souls? Okay. And then suddenly it's like light the fires of Rubicon. We're like, oh, oh, no. okay, say it, say it, say it, say the name. Armored Corset. Oh, we all just cheered. It was great. It's it's such a storied franchise. It's so much going for it. So it says Armored Core 6, but when you look at the series too, there's, I feel like, what, four of the games don't, have at yeah, least three offshoots? No. Yeah, don't. They, you think Zelda's got a complicated history? Look at this. <laughs> well, is that a DLC? No, it's like an expanded. It's kind of like Final Fantasy X2. No, it's just a sequel to only the 10th game and not to anything else here. 
No, that's a sequel to the third game, but kind of on its own. That one's just a DLC, but it, it gets a little gets a little funky here. So, so you're happy this was coming back? Like I said, I think it's been about a decade since we've had Armored Core Five, and I think that one had two offshoots, maybe or three offshoots. Uh, but what made you so excited to have this one back? Because we deserve a new mech game, and I I was waiting anxiously forever for the new Mech Warrior stuff to come out, and and in about 2012 we got Mech Warrior Online, which is decent play with friends, but then they came out with MechWarrior 5 and it was kind of a letdown at the beginning and it's since got, become much better but Armored Core is one of those games that the mechs feel like they have weight to them and the configurations and the changes you can make and how you approach a mission it was just so much fun and i remember making like a four-legged grenade launching monster in one of the earlier games which i see something halfway across the arena or the map and i just nuke it from orbit so i'm looking to see what they can do and the fact that we just got the gameplay trailer like the week before this we recorded this with a release date of august when we didn't it was announced back in the winter and we were like okay is this like a year off two years off no august 24th 2023 and knowing FromSoft, they'll make that date yeah it's not even like they didn't say release window they said release date and i think there's a big difference between that with so so many of these games are like uh release window of uh november and like oh, it's delayed another three months now i think they're gonna they're gonna stick to this one yeah and and i think there's gonna be a lot of people who are used to FromSoft that have come around since Elden Ring and and Dark Souls 3 and Sekiro that are going to be like, oh, what's this game? Oh, it's nothing like the Souls games. What else can it do? And I think they're going to find fun ways to to really make examples of your your enemies in that game. Yeah, That's me. You you could put me in that category. I saw Armored Core 6, and my first thought was, there's there's five others of these. I had (laughs) never heard of this game before. I've never heard of this game. And I saw the trailer that said From Software, and I was like, yeah, that looks amazing. Why is there a six, though? (laughs) It's like, I'll try this. I think they're using their Elden Ring money to be like, okay, yeah, you can go ahead and and make this game. And there's hope yet, because the last Tenchu was 2009, so maybe they'll do a uh, break, kick, kick kick the dust off of that one next year for a little 15th anniversary return. Wrath of the Heaven is my only hope. All right, one of the things we do during the course of the podcast, we take a quest, a question from the Channel 3 History Books for you to discuss. This is the one thing we don't give you a heads up about, but I'm taking from your history. I'm going to ask you, what boss fight sticks in your head the most? A game you mentioned earlier was your answer on the site, but I'm curious to see if it still sticks now. Did I say something from Monster Hunter? No, you said Descent 2. Ah, yes, okay. So, yeah... (sighs) When you asked me for choose my three, Descent 2 was on and off the list a bunch of times before I sent you my final list. And Descent 2 was a game that I was anxiously looking forward to because back in the days of PC and uh, game playing, you could just hand your friend a CD and install the game from the CD with no keys or whatnot. And on the game, on the disc was a game called Descent, which after playing Doom and Doom 2 was amazing. You played in a ship flying in mines with 360 degrees of freedom and you fought off robots using, you know, 10 weapons in the first one. The second game introduced... 10 new weapons. So you had access to 20 total weapons, which playing Doom and your silly 10 weapons, forget that. So the final boss of Descent 2 was, I I forget the name of it, but it was this massive robot with 
two missile launchers. And from those missile launchers, they fired the most powerful weapon in the game called the Earthshaker missile. This is a blue missile that when you shot it, it exploded in a giant blast radius, so anything near it would die. And then it also released 10 smaller Earthshaker missiles that would expand and and explode in the same pattern. So if that wasn't difficult enough, this boss you could only kill through a small port on the back of the machine. So you had to pull Luke Skywalker to get behind it and shoot it fast enough. And if that wasn't enough, the thing can go invisible and teleport. So you want to talk about your your Elden Ring bosses, your Dark Souls bosses? No, this thing you had to be a master flyer. You had to shoot with pinpoint accuracy and shoot the fastest missile you had to be able to kill this thing. And that's why it sticks out in my mind is because the challenge was just so stupidly unfair. I'm surprised I got through it at all. And then the final question we ask is... What has been your favorite feature on Channel 3 so far? I like the fact that giving somebody else a one-up gives them XP. Because if there's one thing that I think Joel had really wanted to make sure that this site did was make people feel good about gaming, feel good about themselves. And when you get people to give you attention and you can one-up their post and they get the XP, not you, they get the XP, shows that A, quality posting will, will rise to the top, and B, People are rewarded for their good behavior on the site. That's a great way to put it. And that's a great way to close another episode of What Are Your Three? We thank you, Ender Phoenix, for being our guest today. And you can find a podcast at c3.gg slash podcast. They drop every Wednesday morning at 3.33 a.m. Eastern on all the major platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. I am L. Ray. Dan Tucker puts this all together. And executive producer Joel Willis. Have a good day, everybody. <laughs>